Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. Today's episode is personal, very personal, as I talk to Damien Mander, the Australian anti-poaching activist and the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. But before becoming an activist, conservationist, and even a feminist, working as a last line of defense for nature, Damien was a sniper in the Australian military, and eventually a private security contractor who worked in my own home country, Iraq, during a turbulent, deadly, and controversial period in history starting in 2005. This is one of the most heart-wrenching conversations that I have ever had, not only on Redefine, but in my life. It could only happen in truth. And that Damien gave. He showed up fully and spoke honestly without holding back about a painful passage of history that changed my life and his. Since reaching this level of truth is so rare, and since the details of Damien's transformative moments are so many, we've split this episode into two parts. The first will run this week, and the second will run next week. It is my hope that conversations like this can serve as an example of healing and reconciliation. And it is the best way I know how to honor the legacy of the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu and all of his teachings about forgiveness. Join me. This conversation is not like other conversations. This is personal, this is different, this is curious, and this is about ultimately healing. For me, and I hope for you too, I trust for you too. And I wanna start it with the letter you sent me, Damien, a few years back. And just to set up the context for our listeners, you and I were invited to give a presentation in Kenya. And just before the we were heading off to the presentation of our travels, I, I, I live in New York, and I was getting ready to go to travel about a month before the presentation, actually. Um, I get an email from a friend saying there's another speaker who wants to connect with you before you go to Kenya. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll connect. I'm, I'm, I actually, to be honest, I wasn't researching who else is going to be there. It was really early on for me to do any preparation. So she's connecting me with you. And suddenly, first thing, 
I get this following email from you. Zainab, I was a part of the system that tried to destroy your country. So I am not sure how to proceed with the conversation. It is my place in a dark history which I cannot take back or change. Just know that when we do meet in Kenya, I will speak with an open heart and the best of intentions on how we are trying to use some really shitty experiences and skills to make the world a better place for animals and those who protect them. Beyond that, I am open to learning how we can continue to evolve in all that we do. Regards, Damien. So... It makes me emotional, Damien, just reading that. Yeah, right me now. too. <laughs> yeah, it's like, quite, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of stuff that comes flooding back, you know, after that email and before it. And and that's where I want to go because uh, to set the context, I am from Iraq. I, uh, it's painful to see my country and everything in my memory destroyed. The house I grew up in became an execution center right after the invasion of Iraq in 2003 for a year and a half, then a brothel, and then a military base. And then it's nearly got destroyed, and now I don't recognize it at all. But honestly, more than the house and all that my family once had, it's um, the destruction of the country, you know, just to drive in different parts of the country and to see it all the memories to see it destroyed, towns, villages, churches, mosques, schools, everything, everything is destroyed. And so it's very painful. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm crying, but it's a very painful experience to witness such memories destroyed. And I had to reconcile with that. I mean, the pain doesn't go, but the reconciliation with myself, the fact that I live in America, a country that really led to that destruction the fact that i in a in a in this country and in a world that has contributed to that dis- destruction right and in a country that you know in my own native country iraq that has also contributed to that dis- the destruction as my aunt says she said america caused half of it or the international community have caused half of it and we caused the other half and we are all in that process together but the letter from you. <laughs> um, first, tell me why did you write it? What is the context? Who were you in that war? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I knew our, our, our lives were on a collision course to meet. And some things you can say at the time, other things you just need to, you just need to get down on paper or in writing and just to take your time to think about it and measure because you know, if I'd come to you the first time we turned up there and I said what I wanted to say, I probably wouldn't have got to say half of what I needed to say, even though it's not a long letter. So then when we did meet, you, you knew my position, that I was open. You know, the the shields of armour had come down and, the, you know, I was exposed to learning and being able to understand what a mistake is and, and to learn from it and to turn it into something good and know that you're part of that that journey. So 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I really appreciate you sending that letter because, again, I didn't know, <laughs> right? And I and and I really do appreciate it was you know for you to reach out in advance and all the reasons that you just mentioned. And I also appreciate that it was a courageous letter to write, you know. Um, but I'm curious. So let's start, if we may. Let's let's deconstruct the process first mm. of all. What role did you play in that war? Where, why were you in Iraq? Mm. In what capacity? Uh, so I, I served. Uh, so I was in, in. I started in the Australian military. I was a clearance diver uh, in the Australian Navy. So that's Australia's version of. Uh, it was closest we have to the SEALs uh, after September 11 uh, attacks in in New York uh, on America. The Australian government formed a. a, a Black Rolls, a very small niche uh, special operations unit called Tactical Assault Group East. And I, I served um, with the TAG, uh, you know, a unit of three platoons. Uh, I was in sniper platoon there and I uh, served my time there. And then Iraq was really uh, was really ramping up. The insurgency was really rising uh, the beginning of 2005. And Australia is a very well-paid military, by the way. Um, but not as well paid as being a private contractor or a mercenary in Iraq. And uh, with the, 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 the CV or resume I had uh, from the units I'd served in, you know, the most elite in, 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 in our military and, and uh, you know, some of the most elite units in the world, I could command a, a very uh, high salary or paycheck in Iraq as a, as a private contractor. And so that's that's why I went there. I went over there initially working, uh, doing close protection for Australian diplomats. And then I got involved with a, a group, uh, an organisation called BLP, and they were tasked by uh, the Iraq Ministry of Interior and the US government uh, under the CPAT, Civilian Police Assistance Training Team, uh, to recruit, train, equip, and deploy battalion-sized groups of um, uh, initially uh, national police to replace. But I, aside from going to Iraq in the first place, is what I would say is the biggest mistake of the Iraq War. Um, disbanding the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police overnight uh, was an absolute disaster. But before we go any further, Damien, so I want to like step back and and go into what made you decide to even join the Australian army, right? Like, let's just go back to that beginning. So you probably won't believe this, uh, Zana, but growing up, I was a naughty little shit. And uh, so we discovered one day that the fishermen down at the wharf, uh, this is, I was about 13 at this time, the fishermen down at the wharf, they're losing their fishing lures. Uh, and these were the, the calamari or squid fishermen. So they lose their fishing lures. Uh, they get stuck on something on the bottom while they're fishing overnight. And, uh, you, know, they, they, you know, these things are expensive, you know, 20, 30 bucks. So if we go to uh, either the hardware store or the fishing store and steal fishing lures, we can go down and sell them to the fishermen. And so, you know, we I dived in, you know, trying to look around. And every one of these things we're getting, we're selling back for $5. Some days we get 30 or 40 of these these lures. So that's, that's how it started. I left school. I was voted uh, the most likely to end up in prison. After wow. What does that years. mean? I mean, like, how bad what would you did? Uh, yeah, look, there was a time there where uh, my friends were either dead, uh, going into witness protection programs or in prison. Uh, and I, I was, I was, I, I, I made it out. I, I made it out. Um, you know, drugs were a big issue in my life growing up uh, for the people around me and eventually myself. And, uh, and I, was, I, I just got lucky. 
I really did. I, I just got out by a hair and joined the Navy. And you know, I, I went through what, what you guys call BUDS, uh, Hell Week, uh, with uh, your SEAL team selection. So we call it CDAP, Clearance Diver Acceptance Test. So it's 12 days of uh, getting, you know, at the time it was between one and two hours sleep a day uh, and just literally stripped bare as a, as, a, as a human, as an individual in terms of suffering to, to face who you are and, and what you want to do. And, and most people don't pass that course. Wow. How old were you? Uh, I was 19, yeah, uh, 20, 20, 20. 19. I joined and the Navy 20 when I did that uh, the selection program. Was there anything that, you know, pushed you to that? Not to the joining the Navy, pushed you to being yeah. voted as the most likely person to go to prison in high school? Uh, I think it was, it was like I was six or seven and my parents separated for the first time and mum moved away. And we went to a new school and I just I got beaten up every day, if it like every single day. And I used to come home, no buttons on my shirt. And I was just like sitting there, like cuts and bruises. And I just turned to this person. I said, no, this, I'm never going to let this happen again. And, and so I just became this like animal, you know, it's like this. And it just stayed with me. And I was always, and then it sort of it grew into a persona that I felt I had to continuously fulfill. But to, to take it back to, I mean, my, my upbringing, I was raised as the son of a, a publican. You know, we grew up in hotels uh, with drugs, all-night parties, organized crime, bare-knuckle bar fights. Then that's what I grew up in. You know, for the first almost 10 years of my life, that, that was, that was what, what I was surrounded by. Mum left uh, dad when I was seven, got back you know, a year later. And then well, just before I turned 10, you know, everything was lost. And uh, we, we ended up like almost overnight moving um, to Melbourne a uh, thousand, thousand kilometers away. And so in a, in a way uh, in, into hiding, uh, you know, away from the organized crime side of things that had uh, you know, become a, a fairly dark shadow over our lives. And uh, it was actually refreshing for me as a kid, just to, just to be able to grow up with kids then and not just be, you know, growing up in a, in a pub, in a hotel, it was just like a constant nightclub. Then once you're in the military, you're surrounded by, you know, in, in these units, you're surrounded by a bunch of people who have, you know, a similar mindset. You're surrounded by a bunch of like silverback gorillas. They're a bunch of alphas. Mm -hmm. I know you have lots of tattoos, Damien. Yeah. Some are very intriguing ones. Yeah. Uh, I know. I rem If I remember, and ladies and gentlemen, I only know because at dinner at the retreat that we were all speaking at one point, you know, we were all laughing and talking and all of that. And Damien told us about his tattoos and showed it to us. And it was, wow. I remember skeletons. I remember, I may be wrong, but I remember, like, what is in front of your chest? You, you tattooed something in front of your chest. Uh, and yes. I'm curious about yeah. that tattoo. And I'm curious about when did you have it and why did you have it? Yeah, I thought... Uh... So it says seek and destroy. Can you have a look if you want? Yeah. Seek, seek and destroy. And destroy. And that's that's uh, intense. Yeah, it is. That's yeah, hugely intense. And it took me, it took me a year, uh, sorry, a decade to grow into it after getting it. I got it when I was uh I guess just like 20. I just passed the acceptance test to go on and, and train to be a Navy diver. And so this it was just this this sh shield of machoism that I'm just building up around myself, 
this masculinity uh, that I thought, you know, you can create by adding tattoos and stuff. And I, and I think in a lot of ways, when people get tattoos, they sort of have to live live out their own story of the, of the ink they've got carved into themselves. Uh, and I was definitely like, I mean, it's hard to get a t- this tattoo like Seek and Destroy and not be that person for, you know, at least the next decade until you're old enough to understand what life's about. And that's it, like it really sort of fueled the persona that I, I, I wanted to create to protect myself initially and then wanted to create to, to keep fulfilling the, the prophecy. And, um, yeah, it took, it took me a, like, I, I got that. I hadn't even, I haven't really achieved anything in the military at that stage other than passing selection. And then, you know, you're going onto, onto these courses with like hard men, hard men that had experienced combat and a lot more life than what I had at that time. And, and, you know, they see this young kid with seek and destroy on his chest and you attract a lot of attention. It's like, and so I, like I drew, I drew, drew the crabs, as we say, and a lot of extra attention during these courses that I was going through. And these are tough courses. And then you've got all these tough instructors now looking over your shoulder uh, through the Navy and then in special operations. And, you know, it, I, you know, if anything, I made, made things a whole lot harder for myself. Um, but in making it harder for myself, I also made myself harder by being able to live up to that and, and deal with all that shit. So, and now I'm sort of in this position. It's, I mean, you, you know me now. I'm just, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've actually come, you know, it says close to 180 degrees of, of what a, a person could, could probably come, which, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about and I'm proud about because I can speak to a different audience. Uh, I can speak to the person I used to be, the hunter, the sniper, the hothead teenager, the bar fighter, the angry kid, and you know, speak, to it, uh, speak to them as a, as a conservationist, as a vegan, as a feminist, and as someone who's, who's, who's I, you know, my, my whole life is trying to do something constructive. Uh, and it's not as a form of redemption. It's just because I've actually realized what the right thing to do is. I mean, I got to tell you, Damien, it's the sniper that scares me right like uh, yeah. i mean i grew up fearing soldiers right I, yeah. I grew up in war i know people who did not grow up in war don't have an encounter with soldiers except for parades perhaps or whatever uh, i live in america and a lot of americans that's what i understand you know the heroes but it's far away and it's an image that is far away i grew up in war and so soldiers were right there in front of you and and I also grew up in a time where, you know, I grew up in a dictatorship and I remember hours and hours and hours of my childhood TV, uh, they, the government would show us images of dead Iranian soldiers killed by Iraqi soldiers, yeah. right? And that was our national TV, the only station we had. So you yeah. sort of, there's no other choice. And, you know, if you want to turn on the TV and if to turn it off is you're seen unpatriotic. So I really feared soldiers all my life and it's not only the person i like i would see small things i feared soldiers boots it always yeah. would give me the shiver because that there's a, a there's something rough about the, the appearance the clothes the intimidating intimidating yeah. and with all of that i mean of course i worked in wars but i worked despite of my fear of soldiers you know i gotta tell you like i always would like <gasps> Am I going to be raped? Am I going to be killed? Am I going to be tortured? Like I had this yeah. uh, reaction until I read a book called The Good Soldier by David Finkel that just changed my own understanding of soldiers and, and 
honestly, Damon, I, I read it before I met you and it helped a lot in our own conversation and what I consider our own healing uh, relationship uh, with each other. But Sniper, for me, is a different level. It's a, it's a born to it's it's a born to kill kind like kind of like you're, you're not born to kill seek and destroy person right because yeah. it's just um it's it's scary so what what led you to be a sniper and what was the worst thing you have done yeah look i you know i can't go into stuff that uh you know would still be unable to speak about not on a personal level and i think i'm being being quite open here and in, in iraq i wasn't working as a sniper uh, i was working as a private contractor yeah we i mean there was there was conflict from time to time i wasn't over there working as a sniper i was working as a sniper with the australian military as part of that that special operations unit uh which did not deploy to iraq but um the stories of what other people had been doing in iraq you know, was shitty you know really shitty you know, I mean, I, I know stories of, of people, you know, stories of people just shooting civilians just to check if their rifle shooting straight. Like, it's, it's, it's horrendous, you know. It's, it's horrendous. You know, and I know I'm I, I, I absolutely honest in saying I went there to make money, but uh, in making money, I was also not going to be part of some of the organizations that were over there, like the Blackwaters that were going around. Like, and the, you know, I'll say this, and I know there's Blackwater guys sitting there, I don't give a fuck if they shit on me for it. They're fucking cowboys on the road, like absolute cowboys, like dickheads. They're having like dickheads driving around and shooting shit up. And, you know, the world's seen those news stories. Um, you know, I work for organizations that are extremely professional, much more so than that. Yeah, well, whatever they want to come and say or say about me, say to me, you know, I don't care, you know, because I was there, you know, I saw how it, how it behaved, you know, cruising around the green zone. You've got a guy pointing a 50 cal at you when you've, uh, you know, if you've unloaded your, your weapons and stuff and, you know, they're pointing a 50 cal at your head because you're, you're driving too close to their convoy once, you, once you're inside the green zone, inside a compound. It's like, dude, chill out, you know, like, yeah, anyway, but you know, even like in the early days there when you know, the security industry was really kicking off, I mean, having security companies having shootouts with each other, it was, it was the Wild West. So I can, I can honestly, like with my animal, I say, like, there's, there's nothing that I did that I, I wouldn't do again. Uh, uh, and, you know, the money I made when I was working over there was a shitload of money. You know, some years, I mean, the biggest year I had there was about 240,000 US dollars tax free in the bank uh converted back into aussie dollars at the exchange rate for the time was a hell of a lot of money towards a property portfolio you know the things i take away from iraq are lessons you know for, i mean there's still some people that have not grown out of the mindset of of who they were then and they're doing doing the wrong shit and you know you still you know those people still come into peripherals from time to time and they're still that person and i'm, I'm you know grateful to have people around me in my life that have helped me or encouraged me to be able to take those shitty lessons and turn them into something constructive. Yeah. Yeah. Before we, I do, I've, I'm very much interested in the, in the, in the story forward. But before we go there, I do want to ask you a few questions on these moments because I recently saw uh, The Kingsman. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a movie yeah. that is just out, and there's a line in it uh, says, "What you, when you." in war, you know, and when in that shooting in war that happens, when you kill someone in war, something gets lost in you, like you're, something gets killed in you. 
And, you know, so I'm, I'm curious, Iraq or no Iraq, it doesn't matter. What was lost in you in, in that process of being in the army? Again, part of the Australian army or part of a contractor. Anything got lost in you in that process? Yeah, you know, um, you know, and don't test me on this because uh, I've got a, you know, a bit of a goldfish brain, so my Arabic is is pretty sloppy these days. Uh, but I, I at twenty seven, I got the job of project manager at the Iraq Special Police Training Academy because when I went there, you know, everyone's like, ah, oh, fucking sand niggers and 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 this and that. It was just fucking, you know, these are Arabs, and and I was like, no, fuck, like we're in that country. And I made an effort to learn the language and I made an effort to learn the culture. And I sat every night, I sat during the day, I, I drank tea. And I, you know, I, I sat at night and, and ate dinner with these, you know, as staff. You know, I, I learned their kids' names, I learned their parents' names, their wives' names. There wasn't one person that I that I'd built a friendship with that hadn't had something significant happen to them. And when I say something significant, like one of their kids killed on the way to school or a wife missing a leg from a roadside bomb or a father that he, you know, he's got to get home from work from a nurse because he's got a stray bullet uh, from a firefight while the father was going to the, the market. And, uh, and when Sun- uh, there was a Sunni general that took over the base in Adamir um, and got there and it was a very tense time you know Adamir is also very close to Sada city the Shiite stronghold in, in northern Baghdad and um and I was the only person that could speak to him in a broken way in his own language he's like I only want to deal with that person and I was a kid at the time and now I was like pushed up as into the, like the lead of this I had no qualifications worthy of, of being uh in that role other than the the just the, the being able to speak to someone on a human level and that really was all uh, that it took uh, was just be able to speak to someone on equal terms as, as a human and not as like a contractor or a foreigner or, or a white guy and an Iraqi or, or you know whatever however you want to separate it or whatever it was just like you know who are your kids what are they doing and you know and he'd ask me you know, about my parents and my family back in australia and we sit there and we swap pictures and sit there and you know a general and a kid from australia sit there and just talk about the world and not, not even talking about iraq or baghdad or the war or whatever we're just talking about the world and and the things that that matter to us and um you know and I, I suppose in a way i was i was starting to learn a lot about the world at the same time and just uh, you know how to treat people and and how to right from wrong in a, in a way and good from bad and you know just seeing it being surrounded by it uh, you know it's very easy to point a finger at it uh, when it's happening around you all day in in every direction but when you when it, you experience it on a personal level and conversation and and sitting around the table and explanation you know and I think Mark Mark Twain summarizes it so well he says Tra- uh, travel is uh, lethal to prejudice and it, it really is uh, and you know in a way there's colonels and generals that i can't remember remember the names of that uh that showed me the world just by sitting around drink, uh, drinking tea with them you know i mean people who are listening to us won't be able to see me but i am crying 
because it's uh you know like the way that war was discussed it's not only this war that war you know the iraqi it just happens to be my culture so it's close mm. to home but all the wars and that war particularly was mm. engagement of the international community along with afghanistan as opposed to other wars which the international community had nothing to mm. do with it but there was like a there's a de- there's a dehumanization of the people you know like uh, the way it's discussed yeah. in the media is sort yeah. of like these thugs you know they didn't say sand nigger but you know they terrorists and it's just like yeah. it takes away it steals away this like it's an insult to the soul you know it's um because it it, it dehumanizes you you know it dehumanizes all oh, those people you know uh they're they blow themselves up for their you know cause or they send their kids to die and it's like when you say these things or they hate us they just inherently hate us it's you just completely take away the humanity of 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 the others and you know as you know you know and as you just shared these are people you know and with stories and with hearts and with narratives and with pains and with and and i constantly every time the media would hear me on american national news i would say why do they hate us you know why do the iraqis hate us and it's like there is no hate there's pain you know there's really pain because you did help control you know destroy the country and you did you know contribute to screwing up the whole entire middle east so there's a lot of pain but there's also love you know, and curiosity, and there's like, oh my God, and we want to know you, and we want to, you know, get to know you, and all of these things, and they're both true, you know, but there's not, it's it's not coming out of just dehumanize, you uh, hate, you know, it's it's coming out of a story. You know, I remember one time, Damien, I I used to work in Iraq, right, as a humanitarian. This is a profound. Do you, do you understand? This is a profound conversation I'm having here. A humanitarian <laughs> with a, a private contractor in the Iraq war. And I remember going to visiting some families uh, and whose homes were raided by U.S. soldiers in the middle of the night, you know, and knocked the doors out and destroyed the doors and, you know, raided the whole thing and, you know, jumped on the, you know, opened the doors of the bedroom and the husband and the wife were sleeping next to each other. And, you know, and that they and, you know, and they arrested the husband and they were telling me, and then they, you know, put the husband in this camp and for a few days and there was no water and there's very shitty food and the whole thing. And then I'm meeting with the family and this family was against Saddam, right? And they're like, listen, we understand these soldiers are trying to do their jobs. We understand they are trying to like figure out something and get safety and peace and security in the country. But I mean, we understand even we're not even judging them for raiding our homes. Like, you know, okay, fine. This is part of the war. But can you please tell them that this is, you know, there is a line. There is a line for us. And the line is, if you destroy our door because you're raiding it in the middle of the night, we don't have money to fix it. And if you're going to knock out the door and just like open on our private bedroom between our husband and a wife, this is our culture and our religion, our privacy. Like you can't do that. We understand you need to raid the house, but can you please tell them? There is a limit in here. And this, I mean, and it makes sense for me, right? Like their request was 
not not uh, unreasonable, very reasonable. So I crossed the street and there was a U.S. base and some soldiers. And I went and asked them. I was like, guys, listen, this is what they these Iraqis are just saying. They're not even like they're being trying to understand you here. But like, can you have a line in here? And they're like, ma'am, sorry. This is what we have been told and we need to do that. And I'm like, did anybody teach you like anything about the culture? Like, do you have any understanding, any, you know, course, crash course or the culture? And they're like, no, we were giving Iraqis for dummies. That's the book, you know, just Iraq, you know, Iraqi culture for dummies. So my question for you, Damien, was there, I mean, you described your own personal curiosity. Was there any awareness clarity discussion between you and your other fellow soldiers you know of contractors or whatever whether it's australians or americans it doesn't about let's just try to understand what's going on or was there not you know when you when you you know when a lot of us when we go over they're just kids hey you know especially the boys especially the boys well, we are still boys you know you don't you haven't you haven't evolved yet you haven't uh, matured and uh you know you've come from a background of being in the military and this this indoctrination of of mission and this tight unit and in my case all male units uh this boys club of just you know programmed to do that seek and destroy and uh, it's very hard to come up to thirty thousand feet and have a look down with perspective when all you do all you're doing is down with pointy elbows fighting in in the weeds you know and i think for a lot of us that's what becomes the problem when you do get that maturity and you do get that that breathing space and then you you don't have the mission you don't have the group around you anymore the, the brotherhood and all of that combines into this you know what for many people becomes post-traumatic stress and it's like fuck what have i been a part of what have i done what was I doing? Where's I've got my mission? Uh, you know, what what's my purpose? And that's I think that's the big thing. I mean, what's what's my actual purpose? I've just spent this section of my life doing what I thought was purposeful, and now I'm I'm here trying to figure out what to do the rest, with the rest of my life. And I don't have any support network around me. I've got a, a wife or a girlfriend that doesn't understand who I was and what I've been through, or family that can't understand who I am now. I was one of the first humanitarians to have uh, gone to Iraq after the invasion, right? It was a small plane, uh, six people in it only. The plane was made in 1969, the year I was born, and I was very scared. It was two weeks after the actual fall of Baghdad. And I was very scared to go back into my own home country when, with, a, with a new story, you know? And I go and... And the airport is a familiar space for me because my father was the head of Iraqi civil aviation. And I go and I see the airport, you know, all of it, U.S. military planes and ally planes and all of these things. And it's very intimidating. And the, it, there's a lot of destruction, destroyed planes. It was a very intimidating moment for me. And I was shaking. And there was a captain, U.S. captain, processing, you know, making his own procedures to understand who is entering the country. I mean, if you remember, there were no border controls. There was chaos. This guy just did it on his own, had his own sheets to like say, who's entered, what day, what's your affiliation, what's your passport number. His own, he made up. 
the the procedures because there were no instructions. So he's asking everyone and writing their names. And he says, who is with Women for Women International? Because that's sort of the, 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 the leisure says that. And I'm like, uh, I am. <laughs> but I'm scared. And I can take back the plane and go back to Jordan where I came from. Uh, you know, I was so scared. I was so scared if they know. I knew Saddam Hussein. Maybe they will, you know, connect me to him, which I had nothing to do with him. But like, you know, I had all these fears, right? And the guy, uh, uh, the captain, I'm going to call him because I don't want to, I don't have his permission to reveal his name, is, you know, pulled his arms from me and shook mine and says, welcome to this country. This country needs you. He didn't know I'm from Iraq. He had saw me on the Oprah Winfrey show, Helping Women Survivors of Wars. And he had contributed with his wife to Women for Women. And when he said, welcome, this country needs you, he was like, we need your help in helping women and rebuilding the lives of people. So we became friends. I mean, we became in dialogue and in conversations like we are right now, right? And the reason I'm mentioning him is because he then I was a state. I stayed in touch with him. I when he came back to uh, the states, I invited him over for dinner, all of that. And he told me a story, Damien, that never left me. He said, "I can tell you things that um, we have done some shit in Iraq, you know." And he talks about in his brigade. He's like we were one of the first uh, wave to enter Baghdad. And there was a, a small part of the city and we were in the tank and the commander said, uh, throw cluster bomb on that part of town, you know, or a small neighborhood. And he said, we did. And the commander said, throw it again. And he, he said, we did again. And he's explaining what a cluster bomb for me, which I don't understand. Yeah, I didn't know what it is. It's just basically a bomb that goes into a million other uh, bombs basically and this has a multiple effect it's not one location it has multiple location that it lands on and you're gonna correct me when I you know what is a cluster bomb but then he said we threw it again and the bomb, the, the commander said again and he said we did it again fourth time again and he said at this point we turned to the commanders like this is a lot I mean we're done I mean we have enough we threw enough cluster bombs and and he said again and my by the way my father was in Iraq during that war and he was in a shelter um, and and fell a bomb fell on them and obviously he's alive thank god but you know it's just shaken because of it and the captain and the commander said again and he said the sixth time he commands us to throw or to you know launch cluster bombs bombs on this one neighborhood one street like that was enough and he said Zainab he looks at me and he said at that point we committed a massacre the sixth time that was a massacre that was not being in the army and he said I could never say that in public because we are told never to tell of the things that we have done because I will betray my fellow soldiers and my fellow if I say it, but I am telling it to you. So my question, what was the worst you have witnessed in your service? And in Iraq, I mean, I, but in your service. That, that, uh, was, a, that was a turning point for you. 
Um, I remember going through through Babel and just you know like one of the, the uh, Babylon and uh, you know just seeing it uh, flattened and just thinking this is you know part of the cradle of civilization and I'm part of you know a very small cog in a big machine that has been a part of just destroying that and the country and culture that built it and uh, um, and all for, for resources in the ground and, and the arguments of old men. We, we just, we're just the smallest of pawns in a, just a big old game and uh, a game that didn't take into consideration all the victims. And uh, yeah, I was, I was part of that part of that machine and um yeah not something i'm proud of you know not something i even had perspective or a lens through which to to see it properly at the time it was just you know you just just drummed into you i won't say brainwashed but it's you know you just programmed to to do and be a part of this this machine and uh you know, I thought that, you know, it's it's almost like uh, kids. Kids, you you, should, you shouldn't be able to join the army until a certain age when you have perspective and life experience and 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 have matured, and uh, and then maybe maybe things would be a whole, whole lot different. So, how did you do that? I mean, what was the moment in which you're saying you said to yourself, "I'm out, I'm out, I'm done, and I'm leaving." It was, um, we were on a mission in Northern Baghdad and, uh, like I, I'd done very well financially by this, this stage. Uh, and I'd, I'd finished doing the training, um, with the Iraqi, um, special police, uh, training academy. And, uh, so I was working for a company called Aegis on project matrix, uh, working with the U S army Corps of engineers. Uh, so we we're doing short and long range reconnaissance across the country, looking at major infrastructure. That had been deployed, uh, been destroyed, um, and we were deploying from from Baghdad each time. So whether it was all the way down south or all the way up in, you know, past Erbil, you know, we we would go by road, and our job was to go in and and look at this major infrastructure, our hospitals, schools, power plants, go in and talk to the locals from a security aspect, while the Corps of Engineers would discuss with them on a bricks and mortar aspect what it would take to to rebuild these areas. Now these areas have been these, these infrastructure be blown up because they become or suspected to become insurgency strongholds. And so, um, uh, yeah, we're on a, we're on a mission. Um, yeah, I can't remember the exact month, but it was, it was on, I think my second last rotation. I think I did 12 or 13 rotations over there. Uh, how long is each rotation for the shortest one I did was two weeks. The longest was six months. So any window in between that. And then, uh, you know, we, we went through a checkpoint and like our convoy was was blown up going through the checkpoint. It killed a couple of uh, uh, Iraqi security guards uh, or uh, police officers that were at the checkpoint as we're going through. And as we pushed through, we, we were surrounded uh, quite quickly by um, uh, like a local Māori army militia and, uh, you know, mixture of militia and, and you know, um, Know, road police and military officers and it's like you know like yeah this is you know, i had a dushka anti-aircraft gun like held to my head and i was like shit now this is it okay this is how it ends wow okay 
That was Damien Mander, and we're leaving him in a tough spot. Please do come back next week to hear how Damien pivoted from this moment of conflict where his own life was threatened to becoming a pioneering steward of the earth and an innovative feminist. Damien has used his training as a soldier in service of something much greater, much kinder than war. Next week, he shares more details of his extraordinary transformation and helps me heal in the process. For full transcripts of this episode, please visit www.findcenter.com. Do remember to subscribe to this podcast. It is free and I truly welcome your comments. You can follow us on Instagram at find underscore center. To learn more about Damien's work, please visit www.iapf.org. Redefine is produced by me, Zainab Selby, along with Rob Corso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Free Time Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Neil Goldman, Carolyn Pincus, and Sherry Johnston. See you next week for part two with Damien Mander. <laughs>